Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to Surgery Grand Rounds Trauma Edition. Um, this activity is being recorded, will be placed on our media site for access for up to two years. This morning's CME activity is sponsored by Northeast Georgia Medical Center. All individuals associated with educate this educational session have declared no relationships with a commercial interest organization, and there's no conflict of interest attached to this learning activity. There's no commercial support for this activity. And for successful completion, learners must complete the survey for CME credit with no partial credit available. Please take time to complete the SurveyMonkey evaluation. The link will be provided for in-person attendees. And then for those of you watching online, the survey can be found under the paperclip icon below the video. Our speaker today is Dr. Alexis Smith. Dr. Smith's primary specialty is pediatric surgery. She's the Trauma Medical Director at Children's Healthcare at Scott of Atlanta, Scottish Rite. She has broad experience in pediatric surgery with special interests in minimally invasive surgery, pediatric trauma, ECMO management, and surgical education. She received her medical degree from Wake Forest University School of Medicine in 2008. She completed her residency in general surgery at University of Maryland Medical Center, also known as Shock, Shock Trauma in 2015, and then followed by a pediatric surgery fellowship at Brown University in 2017. She's board certified in general surgery and pediatric surgery. I will turn the mic over to her. Thank you so much for Thanks, Jessica. And you're good with the mic. It's good. Okay. Hey guys, lots of familiar faces now. I'm, you know, I'm down, you guys are now rotating down with us, the fours. And so I see Elaine, Maurice in the audience. Cash is probably logged in. Um, at Scottish, but it's really exciting. We've really enjoyed having you guys. Um, it's really been a pleasure to train you. So I was asked, thank you, Jessica, um, for having me here this morning to talk about pediatric trauma. I wanted to give some kind of literature updates on how we resuscitate children and how that might be a little bit different than you do it in the adult world. Um, so I have no disclosures. Please stop me if you guys have any questions. It's pretty informal. Um, again, I trained at shock. Um, so kind of took that love of trauma into my pediatric surgery world, which is a little bit more sparse. There's not a lot of pediatric surgeons that enjoy taking care of trauma as well. Um, but I'm one of the few. So a little bit at Cho about CHOA for those of you that haven't rotated down there, haven't been. So we're the largest pediatric trauma system in the country in, term, uh, in terms of registry patients and admissions. Um, we take, we were taking up to 21, um, but now we're dropped back down to 18 because of capacity issues recently. Um, and then our trauma volumes are about 3,100 between our two centers. Obviously our, our level one is at egg and we've chosen to stay at, as a level two at Scottish um, where we kind of both function as level ones almost. And congratulations on you guys with your verification. Hopefully good news to come. So everyone always asks me what makes pediatric trauma different. And since there's no pediatric surgeons in the audience or perhaps logged in, I really hate the idea that I think children and adolescents are just little adults when it comes to, to trauma. There are some notable differences, but I always tell everyone, use your adult, world, adult trauma training and apply it to a child if you're in a situation where you don't know what else to do. And then we'll kind of go over some key differences of what you should keep in mind, but these are, you know, I have the luxury of really healthy patients all the time, pristine vessels, dynamic and responsive um, physiologic reserve. Um, and so they really do re have very effective vasospasm. So non-operative management is very effective more so than the adult world, but 80% of children um, with polytraumas will die because of their severe brain injury. So high rates of TBI and high mortality from TBI are very different from the peds world than the adult world. Um, we deal with a lot of non-accidental trauma, which thankfully you guys don't have to do. It's probably our least favorite part of our job. And then there's no difference in how we care for penetrating injuries. So we're really not gonna get into penetrating injuries. Although I will say, everyone asks me what each year when I'm giving presentations, what's the most salient like paper that came out in peds trauma this year. And this is really it. 
published in New England Journal of Medicine um, this year, is in modern medicine times, this is the first year in which firearm-related injuries surpassed MVC as a leading cause of mortality in children and adolescents. And that is very scary. This is everyone 18, and I think this is actually 19 and under. So a large adolescent population, but even and younger. This is pretty um, scary in terms of how, how we're taking care of our community. But again, we're gonna not talk about it, but that was the most important thing this year out that was published. Um, so what makes young children so unique and what likes, likely for me makes, um, what I think makes adult trauma centers so nervous is their body habitus and how they're able to compensate and hide their injuries. You know, one of the trauma patients that remains ingrained in my mind when I went from um, from shock to being a pediatric surgery fellow was a two-year-old baby that had fallen out of a three-story window and it was a trauma stat. And I came running down to the trauma bay thinking this kid was gonna just be crumping. And the kid was sitting in bed crying because their parents weren't around, but otherwise <laughs> hemodynamically stable with very few injuries. Right. So they, although the kid, the, their bodies are smaller and there's more energy onto their smaller space, ribs, bones bend instead of break. Um, and while more organs get injured because of the kind of habitus that you see there, the liver and spleen is more anterior and organs overlap. Again, they're healthy, pristine vessels and they really can compensate for their injuries by effective vasospasm. Um, and then so in kids, obviously with bone flexibility that um, they can have pneumothoraces in the absence of rib fractures and pulmonary contusions are the most common um, thoracic injury. Again, in the absence of rib fractures, which you don't see in the adult world and rib fractures, when you see them in young children, they had a very high mechanism of force and you should be on high, high alert for other injuries. Um, so Mortality rates in pediatric trauma, right, are much lower than in adult trauma, um, but you know, there. But but hemorrhage does play a, a part in these in the mortality rates, and so it hasn't been very well studied because a lot of pediatric trauma surgeons didn't think that kids bleed as much as adults, but in fact they do. So this was a retrospective review of all deaths from a trauma registry. Um, at a at a single center, level one, less than eighteen over a ten year period, and here they they sought to characterize the early causes the causes of early death versus late. Um, so two percent mortality rate was in keeping with the NTDB rates as well. Um, and when injured children die, what they found was that they're most likely to do so within the first twenty four hours, um, and that it's really I mean in large part due to the high rates of TBI, but hemorrhage contributed to nearly twenty percent of deaths, so much more than we kind of were thinking. Um, and then half of those were deemed potentially preventable or preventable. So I think the question was, what can we do to better identify these children during resuscitation? Obviously we know they can vasospasm. You always hear kids are stable until they fall off the cliff. And that really is true. And so um, <clears throat> what we started looking at is um, SIPA scores. And that was something that everyone really wanted me to talk a little, dive into today. Um, and so in this study on early mortality, elevated SIPA was significantly more common in the patients that died um, versus those who survived from their injuries. And so resuscitation impedes trauma. Again, those basic principles that you um, of taking care of critically injured adults in the first hour apply to children. Um, massive transfusion, balanced resuscitation, whole blood, we'll talk about those, follow adult trends. They're probably, you're like, I've heard all that adult data before, but the PEDS data is very new. So we're gonna go over that today. Um, but again, just remember infants and children have a pronounced cardiovascular physiologic reserve. Um, their increased heart rate is really your first sign of shock. And that's what we'll talk about SIP a little bit. Um, a quiet tachycardic child. So one that's not screaming in the trauma bay should make you very nervous. Um, because that's the signs of early shock. And then a, the blood pressure or hypotension is really your last physiologic variable. So that was when I switched from adult to peds, I remember being like, every adult comes in hypotensive, right? Everyone's getting blood. It's just so common. 
but in the peds world you don't if you hear if you hear that they're coming in from ems with hypotension they have injuries and they may you know they're going to need an intervention it's really rare for kids to be hypotensive in the field they compensate well so like blood pressure again is going to be your last physiologic variable those kids should be getting blood in route they should be getting like aggressively resuscitated so sipa um, was developed which is um, shock index pediatric adjusted to incorporate right age specific stuff so we know that vital signs are different in young children and infants um, versus adults and so sipa has really become a proven tool to help us predict mortality and outcomes and pediatric blunt trauma. And we'll talk, we're gonna do all the literature dive. Um, so you guys know about shock index, greater than 0.9 predicts mortality and adult trauma, increasing shock index. Um, and this is all based on standard vital signs in adults, um, but vital signs with age um, and children, right, are very different. And so this was to help us <clears throat> um, Kind of be able to apply shock index to children effectively. So this was the landmark paper in which SIPA first gained traction in the pediatric trauma world, and that was in 2015, so not too long ago. Um, and again, it's the same, the same formula is just shock index, but it's, you can see here, the cutoffs are different um, based on age. So once you're, once you hit 13, you're at the adult. Um, and again, the adult kind of greater than 0.9, but it, when you're younger, your SIP is gonna be higher because your heart rate is higher as standard when you're younger. So this first paper, SIP was able to demonstrate improved discrimination of the, um, of both, you know, those severely injured kids, those that require blood transfusions, high grade solid organ injuries and in hospital mortality as compared to shock index, um, which was unadjusted for age. Um, and then I'm going to kind of just roll through a couple other papers because everyone looked, thought this was super interesting and went to go validate it. This was a TQIP data set of greater than 20,000 civilian pediatric trauma patients. Um, SIPA was elevated in 15% of blunt trauma, almost 20% of penetrating. And that really is more discriminatory than, again, those just shock index, which was much higher. And then SIPA was significantly better predictor for transfusion needs, severity, injury severity scores, ICU, admission, ventilatory days, all the things. Um, and it validated, this study then validated usage um, now younger down to one to four. So we don't, SIPA is not validated below one year of age. So you kind of think about it one and older. Um, and then it, there was no difference in predicting severity of injury for penetrating trauma again. So this is just blood and trauma. And then they validated SIPA a step further by looking at war zones. So this is DOD trauma registry, all patients less than 18. And they classified those two groups into normal and elevated SIPA, again, using the age specific cutoffs. Um, and then, so, they had a much bigger group of penetrating injuries, obviously, in the um, in war zones. But patients with elevated SIPA scores had a significantly greater need for transfusions, procedures, ICU admission, and mortality again. And you can see those cutoffs. Oh, it's kind of cut off here. Uh, but again, the same cutoffs on the side. So how does SIPA fare in pre-hospital care? So how can we use it in the field? Are EMS colleagues, can they... Should they be telling us these numbers over the phone as they're calling in patients and then we can start trending those out? Um, and so, right, all the other prior studies we just went over, they only talked about SIPA and ER arrival. The goal was to evaluate in this study the utility of SIPA on the scene and to describe changes from scene to ER. Um, and so it was, again, a TQIP database review. This was 15 and under. Um, and SIP was calculated at the trauma scene and on ER arrival. And then they found 17 or almost 18% of patients with persistently elevated SIPA from injury scene to arrival. And again, that was more discriminatory than just shock index alone. And then elevated at SIPA at scene was more predictive of higher injury scores, length of stay, ventilatory requirements and transfusions. Um, and that SIPA remain, that remained abnormal also was associated with increased mortality. I mean, it's just kind of somewhat um, common sense, but it's 
it's helpful. It's, it's definitely, it's a, it's a number that's more discriminatory than just shock index alone. So pre-hospital SIPA values may predict a worse outcome, but in general, the, st um, the studies supported that trending those values may have a greater utility um, than just a single value alone, which makes sense. Um, and then this, another study, follow-up study determined the utility of serial SIPAs from pre-hospital to ER to help identify those children with um, blunt liver or splenic injuries and that required blood transfusion. So just getting, nailing, diving into a little bit more detail, but it was another retrospective single institution, which is common in the peds world. Um, less than 18 here over a 10 year period. 20% uh, of the 400 plus patients received a blood transfusion within 24 hours of arrival. And then nearly 90% of those patients had an elevated SIP at least at least one point in their um, hospital stay. And again, this, this study supported that trending SIPA scores was superior than just like picking one out during their stay. And then this was the first prospective cohort utilizing SIPA. Atomic is our... Um, pediatric Trauma Consortium, kind of in the Midwest, who's put out a lot of data, and we'll talk a little bit about solid organ injury. Um, but they can, when compared to just shock index alone, an elevated SIPA was more associated with, again, blood transfusions, severity of injuries, having um, high-grade um, solid organ injuries, ICU stays, and ventilatory um, and interventions. So, you know, here is a kid we had recently, four-year-old, hypertensive, tachycardic um, to the 130s, and SPP of 90. So a SIPA was 1.4, and that's elevated for a four-year-old, greater than 1.2. But it was a low-speed MVC. The kid was neurologically intact. Um, a four-year-old who was a terror away from their parents on a backboard and is screaming, screaming. So is that an effective way? You know, just trying to SIP is not the end all be all. I wanna just make sure everyone understands it has its uses, right? And you've gotta apply it appropriately. It is a good marker for injury severity. It's great to help triage for myself to figure out my next steps, thinking about um, soliding or solid organ injuries and then need for blood. Um, it really doesn't yet have any, it doesn't have any use in activation criteria. It hasn't been shown yet in the pediatric trauma literature to help us discriminate who should be upgraded to a STAT or not. It overestimates the need for STATs so far. And then you have to think about tachycardia in children really is caused by many, many things other than just bleeding. Um, and most of that is probably fear, anger, um, throwing temper tantrums in the trauma bay, just a little bit different than in the adult world. But SIPA is easy to calculate. And I cannot remember vital signs based on age and I'm a pediatric surgeon, so, and I'm not going to remember them. But SIPA is really easy to do. And then I'm just like, okay, is it greater than 1.2 or is it not? It, it, and if I can't even remember my cutoff and I just like Google it. Um, and I, you know, you can't calculate an injury severity score and you can't, it's difficult. Again, children are, are difficult to predict what their injuries are gonna be because um, they're very good at hiding them. So I often use it as a tiebreaker to help me decide on, on various things. Um, but it is really useless in that other scenario. It's useless in neurologically alert children that are losing their mind in the trauma bay. So if you have a tachycardic and hypertensive patient with an elevated SIPA, neurologically intact, it probably means nothing, right? So you need, you know, you need to know how to use your tool appropriately um, and think about if that's the appropriate time, use your common sense. Um, so what if we do have a bleeding child? Um, so I'm, I wanted to go over a little bit more of salient pediatric trauma literature on resuscitation, MTP, whole blood, and the use of fast angioembolization with bow in children and adolescents. Um, it's gonna just kind of fly through this. So stop me if you have any other questions. Um, but again, pediatric literature follows adult trends. It really, it, it does. Um, it's, but it's certainly lagged behind, which is, really for all parts of pediatric surgery is pretty typical just because everyone doesn't wanna do research in kids. Um, but this is a study from EAST um, in 2020 that looked at patients younger than 18 transported from the scene um, with elevated SIPA scores and um, looking at crystalloid versus 
blood product transfusion. So the volume and timing of ED, of pre-hospital ED and initial admission re recess with crystalloid boluses overall and before transfusion were analyzed and half of the patients received greater than one crystalloid bolus uh, of half them required transfusions. So patients that received product first had decreased ventilatory days. I see length of stay, hospital stay, things you already know in the adult world. And there was no difference in mortality in these kids, which is different than the adult literature. Um, but this really was the first paper that supported crystalloid sparing early transfusion approach for resuscitation in injured children. When I started in ped surgery, you know, we, I was seeing a lot of coming from the adult world, seeing a lot of outside hospitals and EMS really giving a ton of crystalloid. And that's changed a lot in the last five years. So it's kind of, you're like, this is old news, but not in peds trauma. And again, similarly, you know, there's been longstanding convincing evidence that MTP in adult patients with severe trauma improves outcomes. Um, and the consensus really, although, uh, you know, on the ideal component ratio, you'll see a lot of different papers out, uh, changes in adjusted, there really was no evidence of any improved outcomes in pediatric trauma until 2019, so not that long ago. And here's a landmark study, again, out of our um, trauma consortium, um, where they did a retrospective review of five level ones, analyzed um, adolescents and children under 18 um, who received in excess of two units, 20 per kilo or activation MTP. They defined massive transfusion as 40 cc's per kilo um, in a 24 hour period for children. And then this was again, the first study and you can see over on the, can't really see, sorry, on the diagram. The first study to demonstrate a survival benefit um, when children and adolescents received a balanced one-to-one -one, uh, resuscitation. So TEGS for goal-directed resuscitation and whole blood um, use has shown early benefit in terms of like kind of toggling after off of this, but it's really not widely used across the country. If you'll believe it, we are not using whole blood at CHOA. Um, there's a few institutions that are standard using whole blood. Really, Pitt has um, University of Pittsburgh has kind of paved the way, and we're joining multi-institution study to get whole blood kind of on to get it. But really, actually, the only the kids that I've seen have gotten whole blood of it coming from up here. So, which is good to see. But it is safe in children, right? So there is there is literature that's supporting that it's safe. This is a paper from the group out of Pittsburgh that really again is kind of the trailblazers and all of this. They, re they reviewed 47 children who received whole blood and analyzed for evidence of hemolysis during the first two days following transfusion. Um, and you can see they, how they monitored for it. And there was really no clinically or st statistically different um, difference in their baseline post-transfusion or um, on day one or day two hemolysis markers. So again, no adverse effects or transfusion reactions were reported. So it's safe. Um, and then again, this is, well, this is the group out of Arizona. They, this is mainly adult um, trauma surgeons. So they went to, they looked at TQIP um, children under 17 who were transfused within four hours of presentation who received either whole blood or component. Um, and you can see the numbers there, pretty high penetrating injury rate. Most, most studies are around 10 to 15%, but um, for whatever reason, probably because those kids were the ones that got transfused early because they based it only four hours. Um, and so decreased total blood products transfused in voluntary days were found in children receiving whole blood versus component therapy. So, and then again, no difference in mortality. So whole blood is safe and overall effective and more to be determined on our multi-institutional perspective study coming out, hopefully in the next year or so. Um, so then the next step, you're, you know, you, you're calculating your SIPA scores, you're, you're starting your transfusion or you're continuing it based on your EMS colleagues. Um, and then everybody wants to put up a probe and part as a part in, in the adult world, 
it's a part of your secondary survey and it's reflexive. Um, I can tell you, I have not put, I have not done a fast exam in a child in a very long time now. So why is that? So, you know, several studies on fast that came out recently indicated that those that were undergoing fast were then less likely to get a CT scan, which is a little bit concerning because then how are you actually treating somebody non-operatively or operatively based on just a fast exam? So, you know, obviously FAST was initially developed for hemodynamic and unstable patients who you did not think you could get to a scanner or an intervention who needed to say OR, no OR. And that really is where the FAST is still effective in the PEDS world and shouldn't be applied outside. But we'll go over some data. So this was a multi-institutional study to investigate the role of FAST for diagnosing intra-abdominal injuries and then those requiring intervention after blunt trauma. Um, so this was less than 16 presenting to 14 level ones. Um, and it excluded those children that were presenting far after their injuries. So transfers, penetrating injuries, or those that already gotten a CT scan prior to arrival. Um, and then the decision to perform a fast was at the discretion of the trauma team. And so of those 829 patients who underwent a fast, then another subset then got a CT scan. And this is, again, first evaluation, not transfers, not kids that had already been evaluated. Um, so looking at those, so that was the subset of really what we're analyzing here. So those 340 patients that had FAST and then CT scan, 81 injuries were missed. It's a lot of injuries um, by FAST. And then of those, 15 of those patients then needed an intervention, meaning angioembolization or OR. Um, and what's even scarier, and it's not up on the slide, is that almost 80% of the 24 high-grade liver injuries were missed by FAST. Seems crazy, but I just had a level, I had just had a grade five come in liver and their FAST was negative. Um, so I guess that's my, don't do a FAST. <laughs> um, and then 15 of the high-grade splenic injuries were missed by FAST. That's also, right, like what, we're talking about grade fours and fives, you can't see in kids. So again, it has a really low sensitivity in children. It can miss injuries and then even those that need intervention. Um, and then a second study just to help kind of like drive this home. Um, obviously, this was a randomized clinical trial, which is rare in children. So I thought important to talk about. Um, and then it's not, almost a thousand children under 18 were randomized to fast or no fast during trauma resuscitation. And again, so among hemodynamically stable pediatric patients, which is a vast majority of them, right? They compensate for their injuries um, following blood trauma. FAST did not decrease your need for CTs, identify missed injuries, decrease your ED length of stay. So that's a big thing now with our capacity issues or hospital costs. So really the idea is, do we need to just abandon FAST completely in children? And I would say, again to you, a negative fast in the trauma bay, don't be scared to scan a child. If they are injured, they need a CT scan, right? That's how trauma works. It's not, you're going to do a fast and, and be like, okay, it's negative. You know, I'm a little concerned of abdominal injury, but I have a negative fast. It, that, that's not how you should, you know, again, I'm like a pediatric surgeon saying like, go scan people, but that's how trauma is. Um, you can use ultrasounds for other things like appendicitis. Um, so we've got a seven-year-old girl, restrained passenger, high-speed MBC, um, uh, fatality on scene. So high mechanism, um, they got crystalloid in the field. The SIPA reported was 1.4 on arrival, airwaves intact, GCS of 14, complaining of abdominal pain. SIPA was rising to 1.67, activated MTP based on those kind of needs. We started transfu balanced transfusion. And she responded, SIPA started to de um, decrease down to one, two, and then we did our full trauma workup and then CT um, was done. And that showed a grade five spleen and a grade four liver injury. And she was treated successfully non-operatively. I mean, when I moved from the peds world, again, from the adult world to the peds world, I would have been like, no way. No, there's no way that that can just heal without embolization. Um, and she had an active blush on the, you can see there on her, my, my pointer doesn't work, um, on her grade five spleen. So let's kind of dive into, you'll hear a lot when you come down to Cho is solid organ injury, 
manage per atomic protocol. So just so you understand what atomic, atomic protocol is and then we, why we use it so often. In the peds trauma world, everything used to be managed based on grades. So grade four or five had to go to the ICU. Grade four or five had to be on bed rest of injury plus two days. So, um, so in the bed for a week and in the hospital for a week. And this consortium called Atomic, which is out of the Midwest really, um, worked to create a new guideline for non-operative management really based on hemodynamic status rather than the grade of injury. So treating the patient and not the number or the, the CT scan. And so <clears throat> that's what they kind of came up with. They generated 27 clinical questions and they supported all of it with, with primary literature. Um, and again, their strong recommendations included, you really can manage it based on hemodynamic status rather than grade. Abbreviated bed rest is fine if um, for one day or less. So just overnight for those with low grade injuries and, and whose hemoglobin has been stable or even higher grade injuries. Um, don't transfuse unless it drops below seven. Kids get more transfusions once they someone decides. Um, Non-operative management can be applied to multiple injuries like the patient we just saw. Um, and then children with isolated <clears throat> blunt liver or splenic injuries without signs of bleeding, stable hemoglobin can be discharged home before 24 hours. So those are the strong ones. And then a couple conditionals that they talked about, right? Hemodys again, hemodynamic status should guide your ICU admission, not your grade. Um, although they, but with the exception of all grade five injuries should go to your ICU. Um, you can start PO. So a lot of these kids were left MPO for days on days. Again, so start PO when, when you have no signs of bleeding. Um, angioembolization should be an adjunct to improve splenic salvage, but not all children with contrast extrab or a blush need an embolization in, in pediatric trauma. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Balanced resuscitation should be considered and limitation of crystalloid. So some things we went over. Here's the big pathway and you guys can peruse this at your pleasure later. Um, we won't go over it, but literally every other, every pediatric trauma center who has a, the blunt abdominal trauma guideline really is based on, this is what CHOWS is based on and everywhere else I've been or helped um, create. So how did children treated with atomic guideline fare? Um, so this was their prospective follow-up study, <laughs> um, identifying the frequency of failure and characteristics of those who failed non-operative management. Again, they looked at it at these 10 level one pediatric trauma centers, including CHOA, um, and they defined failures, non-operative management of those below. Obviously anyone was getting X-lap or putting a scope in, any packing, solid organ injuries or hollow viscous injuries um, and pancreatic or distal panks or pancreatectomies. But angioembolization was not considered failure. And then, so they looked at a, about a thousand patients. Um, half of those were had liver injuries, 40% of splenic and 10 both. And what they found was 93% were successfully managed non-operatively. And that's a huge, great number. Um, only 7% failed. And of those 7%, only 3% failed from bleeding. So the other ones failed, obviously, from hollow viscous or pancreatic injuries that needed to go to the OR. Um, so in failure rates for an isolated liver was only 4% and 0% for an isolated spleen. So if you have a grade five spleen in a child, it does not mean that they're necessarily gonna need to go get their, their spleen out. It's, it's pretty insane, but it's true. <laughs> I mean, looking at, I've, I've looked at a lot of CT scans now in the last five years, and you, you can have very severe injuries and it's not predictive on their CT of who needs to get embolization or who needs to go to the OR. I haven't done a splenectomy for trauma. It's been about six years. Um, and you really base it on hemodynamic. How does the child look rather than what does their CT look like? That makes sense. But those that failed, um, so those that failed really were those children with combined liver and spleens that I showed you before. Obviously the pancreatic injuries that are high risk for failure as well. So then how often kind of toggling into that, how often do we use angioembolization in children and adolescents? And what's different than the adult world? 
is pretty striking. Um, again, we embolize based on hemodynamic status, so not your reflexive grade fours and fives or pseudoaneurysm. None of those kids go immediately for angioembolization. Everyone is, every decision is made on how they are doing clinically. Um, so this is the group out of Utah and they looked, um, they queried the NTDB for all pediatric patients that sustain just splenic injuries. So this is not liver. Um, over a five-year period, they excluded, you know, those same injuries that we talked about before um, that would confound the role of splenectomy in an operative setting. And they wanted to find the relationship between adult and pediatric trauma centers and how they manage or how they choose to do angioembolization. Um, and then about 14,000 met inclusion criteria and 3.7% of those underwent angioembolization. And those are the ones that we were looked at. Um, so, and again, pretty commonsensical was the odds of angioembolization higher in older patients, those that received the blood transfusion, more severe injuries, and then those that presented to an adult trauma center or a dual certified trauma center as compared to sta the standalone pediatric trauma centers. So surprisingly, the number of um, angioembolization patients with low-grade injuries was what kind of caught my mind. I've never seen a grade two or grade three ever have to be embolized in a child. Um, so you can see those numbers differ drastically in the middle and in the right column. And that's your, the dual tra certified trauma centers are those, you know, peds trauma within an adult. So it's like Savannah and Georgia-Macon. Um, where your adult trauma surgeons are really running your peds trauma um, versus the standalones, which is your PTCs and then a pure adult trauma centers on the right. Um, and so they found that patients treated at adult trauma centers were four times more likely to undergo angioembolization, seven times more likely to get a, a splenectomy. If you compared it to the standalone pediatric trauma centers, they really very few splenectomies and angioembolizations over that six year period, which I thought was a little strange. We, I angioembolized quite a few kids based on their hemodynamic status. Um, and I was surprised by that number and that kind of talk about how that, what that led to, what next study that led to. Um, <clears throat> but there was no patients undergoing angioembolization um, at a peds trauma center that failed management and went onto splenectomy, which was very different than my adult world experience. You do have patients that fail, um, kids do not. Um, and then they did some regression models. There was no difference in mortality between the cohorts. And, and again, it's all pediatric trauma centers were able to accomplish a higher splenic salvage rate, uh, lower angioembolization rate, and no difference in mortality. Um, so we're doing something a little bit different. I think we're able to sit on our hands a little bit more comfortably, if that makes sense. Um, but so that kind of got me interested when I saw that paper come out. I felt like we were embolizing more than they were um, in the NTDB. So um, I started this Atlanta Adolescent Trauma Project and that was between AMC before they closed Grady and then our two um, centers. I know that we've talked about starting it kind of wider to Georgia, looking at how we do different things differently, and then how do we unify our management so we make sure that we're really taking care of everyone. Because in my mind, I thought more kids should be embolized because they don't fail and move on to splenectomy. Um, and I wanted to see, you know, especially as we were starting to take care of the 18 to 21 population a little bit is do we need to be embolizing the way we do in the adult world or do those patients still fall into like the really pristine vessels and can they be managed more non-op? And I still haven't answered those questions yet, but this is kind of what's come out of it a little bit. Um, so our, again, our goal was to integrate our blunt abdominal trauma algorithms across the city um, and review our management outcomes, interventions, et cetera. Um, and so, um, we excluded in this group, these are kind of the, the, the raw results, but we excluded TBIs, isolated pancreatic or hollow viscous injuries. Um, and then our primary objective was to um, compare our angioembolization rates. Um, and we found a higher proportion of grade four and five injuries were treated in the pediatric trauma center. So they came to us rather than the adult trauma centers. And I think that probably makes sense. Um, we're in region, you know, and within our region and there's a lot of transport between um, centers that are somewhat close. 
Um, and then looking specifically at the angiography and the angioembolization rates, um, at the um, adult trauma centers, 18 underwent angiography, um, and nine of which uh, subsequently underwent embolization, and compared to eight patients who underwent angiography with embo at, we tend to do both no matter what, at our pediatric trauma centers. Um, and when we analyzed this, it wasn't much, there was no significant difference. It was approaching significance, but I, I you know, again, it's interesting, the Atlanta data does not mimic the national data. So we are embolizing more, and that might be younger surgeons that we have. Um, I can't, I'm, we're, we're kind of trying to nail down those details now. Um, but this did, this did, um, Kind of mirror the the national data is that 19 patients required surgery, but this also included not just splenectomy stuff. This was solid organ, so liver, um, liver packing, liver repair, um, and that was compared to only one patient that needed it at pediatric trauma center. Um, so again, the non-operative management rate between centers was still low, though. So our adult trauma colleagues are doing great. They are um, non-op at 92 percent. And then we were at 99%. But what if we do have a bleeding child? I'm just gonna spend the next like 10 minutes and then I'll open up for questions. Just talking a little bit about Reboa in the adolescent population. It's, it's you know, again, our data is following well behind or lagging well behind the adult data, but it is, we did start doing it at shock um, and we published that, we'll just go over that. So this was an 11 year old who was ped, you know, struck um, by a car hypotensive, had a brain injury too, um, um, activated MTP on arrival and abated, found a grade four liver injury, right renal injury, had active bleeding, had became hypotensive despite MTP. Um, long story short, he got X-lapsed and then uh, a robot was placed when they coded intraoperatively um, after Pringle. Um, but you know, historically, an ED thoracotomy has really been the only method for aortic occlusion um, for hemorrhage below the diaphragm in children. And this has classically been anterior lateral thoracotomy. You guys all know this, aortic cross clamping. But ED thoracotomy in children really is widely debated due to the dismal outcomes and the high percentage of really severe TBI. So just like that kid that ended up in the operating room, had a really, actually in the end, had a devastating brain injury that um, you could, you know, you know, you could debate whether or not they should have been on the table in the OR or not. Um, but there was no reported survivors in, in children less than nine years of age who underwent an ED thoracotomy for penetrating trauma. And then until recently, no, none, which shocked me when I first started kind of looking into Rabo in adolescence, no one reported um, survivor of pediatric blunt trauma under, undergoing aortic occlusion under the age of 14. And again, this does reflect high TBI rates. Um, so the question we are not answering today is like, why does ED thoracotomy remain so prevalent despite these really dismal outcomes in adolescence, um, but rather as heroic measures are still employed, right? You have a kid that comes in and they're coding and they're bleeding, you, you know, everybody wants to intervene, but is there another alternative, which you guys know, um, as opposed to open, but rather um, is Reboa feasible and safe in, these, in this patient population? So the use of the aortic occlusion balloon um, in the pediatric population was first described in 2010. This is vascular surgeons at Emory actually did it. Non-trauma patient, but there was a ruptured aorta, esophageal fistula in a child that had ingested a button battery. Um, and uh, they used a seven French sheath and angioplasty balloon and eventually got them bridged over to endovascular stent placement. So, but this is the first one described in the literature. So pretty recent. Um, and then the Japanese were the first to publish the Reboa data in pediatric trauma. Uh, this study is a retrospective review of the Japanese trauma data bank. Um, over a decade, they had identified 58 patients that were treated um, with Reboa under the age of 18. The youngest patient was 11 in, this, in their group, and the vast majority of patients were adolescents, as most of these studies are for Reboa and um, peds trauma. 53% of children and 38% of adolescents survived to discharge. So really high rates that doesn't reflect the adult literature in the States. Um, and again, this is how Japan 
applies Reboa much differently. I've worked a lot with a jet that they were at shock a lot, the Japanese surgeons. Um, they don't have a lot of trauma surgeons in Japan. So most of this is ER, ER doctors and they put in Reboa pretty uh, prophylactically in anticipation for any hemodynamic collapse during transport to get to a surgeon. So, um, but their, their database really failed to capture any Reboa specific details that we didn't get, I was trying to dive into it. You really can't figure out timing to aortic occlusion, the size of catheters, complications, et cetera, from their data here. Um, but this is a little bit, this is their algorithm. Again, they have different indications in, in usage and out for Reboa and the vast majority are placed by ER physicians. Um, they're placed early and prophylactically for even um, in those patients that look pretty hemodynamically stable in anticipation of transport. Um, but once placed, it's not immediately inflated. They kind of leave it in there for transport and then take it out if need be. It's pretty interesting. So um, here in the States, we decided that we want to describe the experience with Reboin adolescent trauma patients and those, some of those more details that we weren't able to capture from the Japanese study. This is a retrospective review. It was not a lot of patients, um, but it was, um, it was across two institutions. I did it between Shock and Red Duke, um, Texas Trauma Institute in Houston. And then both institutions during that time, you used the CODA balloon and then we transitioned over to the ER Reboa. Um, so from the 12 French to the seven, Remember the old coda, it was awful, super long, amplets wires everywhere. Um, so there was only seven adolescent trauma patients um, and mean age of 17 that received Reboa for blunt and penetrating. Our youngest patient was from Houston was 14. Um, so really not a lot of usage in young patients in the States. And that really has the cutoff for adult trauma center. That's who's using Reboa, right? Is the adult trauma centers apply it to adolescents and peds trauma centers really it's hard for me to get anyone to to use it um but despite you doing some thoracotomies recently um so 57 percent of the patients were in arrest with ongoing cpr um and um for patients presenting an extremis their mean uh occlusion blood pressure was um 60 and increased to 120 following occlusion so there were no failed Reboa attempts. Overall in, house, in hospital mortality was 71%, which more, much more keeping than, and very different than the Japanese data. Um, I mean, everyone was bridged to the OR um, with the usage of Reboa. Again, one patient died intraoperatively, um, had a penetrating injury, retrocable, um, and then retrohepatic cable, and then four other patients died post-op in the ICU and all related to sequelae of their TBI. Um, but we did conclude that Rebeau was feasible for usage and effective bridge to get patients to the OR who are in extremis. But other, others, um, other countries are also using Rebeau in pediatric trauma. And this really, this was the landmark paper out of Sweden. They're doing a lot of Reboa. Well, not a lot. They're applying, they don't have a much less severe injuries in, in Sweden, but um, they are applying it. This was a, the first patient or described or first survivor to, dis, um, um, to survive to discharge um, who underwent, um, who was in cardiac arrest on presentation and underwent aortic occlusion. So this is an 11-year-old, lost, lost vitals during transport. Rabot was placed on arrival. Um, you can see his as changes in blood pressure. It was unclear how long the occlusion time was. They do a lot of partial occlusion, so they didn't quite describe that. And then his injuries are listed there. Um, and again, this all, kind of all this data is, Rebo is feasible. We don't have any prospective randomized trials um, to support it, but um, it can aid in bridging in those patients in extremis um, for adolescent trauma. And again, it's the early, the youngest is described in, at 11. Um, so Reboa interventions are occurring around the world, right? So um, this is the new Cobra OS. I don't know, have you, are you guys using Cobra here? Have you gotten the four French? Have you guys gotten the, the four French Reboa yet? The Cobra, yeah. I'm, trying to get it. I mean, ideally you would think with a four French, it's gonna be more, it'll make it more kind of palatable in the pediatric trauma 
or adolescent traumas because you think their vessels are smaller. Um, it's wire-free, it's compliant. It's very, very similar to your ER Reboa. This is out of, um, this is coming out of uh, Canada. It's a Canadian company. Um, so I'm working on trying to get it at CHOA. We shall see. But anyways, so just wrapping up because we're almost out of time. Again, those anatomical differences between pediatric and adult trauma patients, ribs bend, right? And uh, they transmit energy more than absorb, um, rather than absorb it. So there's more organ injuries, but they're in healthier patients that can compensate for those, um, right? High non-operative management, 93%. So treat your, treat your patients uh, based on what they look like clinically rather than what their CT looks like. Um, again, it's gets, everyone gets a little nervous when a young child is in your trauma bay. I know I've gotten calls here, um, especially when, you know, they're under the age, you know, they look like a baby. Um, but again, use your, use your adult resuscitation and it, it will mirror it. Um, other than those few things that I talked about today, fast really is not accurate. Don't make a decision on CT scanning based on your fast scan. You can, if you want to put a probe on a child, by all means, it's not going to hurt them, but it shouldn't also change their outcomes. Um, and then angioembolization rates, obviously in the adolescent trauma centers, um, look different across the, sun, this, the country, but are similar in Atlanta. And so we're trying to kind of nail down on that a little bit more. And then Rebo is feasible in adolescent patients. All right. Well, I think most of you will be coming down to, to Scottish Rite, but um, we're really excited to have you guys, your residents here, and it's been really fun to train you this year. So, any questions? What's that? Who, for Japan? Yeah, they, I mean, I think they're, they're putting them up early and quickly. Yeah, so they, what's in, I mean, Japan, it's so cool. I went to the, the endovascular trauma management. Um, I spoke at it last year in Sweden and the Japanese were there and the things they're doing in the ER is just so cool. I mean, some of it's because they don't have a lot of surgeons, but essentially every trauma bay is this hybrid, is a hybrid OR. So they have the CT scanner there. They, um, you know, they have fluoro. It, so every trauma bay is wildly outfitted to be to easily throw up a Reboa and that's done by the ER guys. So bef before they even know whether they have a pelvic fracture or not really, um, they'll just put it in zone one. I think if they have any, and you know, as adults, they come in hypotensive a lot. So if you have a hypotensive adult, they'll just put it in a, a balloon and they're sitting there, they put it up, they have their fluoro and then they do their CT scan. And then they'll eat, and they'll also angioembolize all there. It's pretty kind of cool. But I, you know, I think that's adopted from not having access to surgeons. And peds. It's pretty rare. We have had some pretty severe injuries that have gotten embolized recently. We were going to look at that as well. I mean, it's definitely less, you know, we don't have our 80 year old women who, who obviously a, after any accident with pelvic fractures need embolization, but I've had a, I had a six-year-old recently. She had a really severe. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's really going to be really rare that you need a Verboen in kids. I mean, you do. I mean, um, and when I've used it, it's never been like I did in the adult world, which is at the time that they're in the trauma bay bleeding, because the reality is most of these, even adolescents, um, are, you know, you can start MTP and you're going to get them stable enough to get to the CT scanner and figure out what's going on. Um, we just have more, they can hide their injuries, but we do have more time to figure out things. I think it's, 
you know, the kids I've seen die from hemorrhage at CHOA in the last five years have been kids that haven't gotten the full workup. So the girl that got a fast, she was a, there was a recent like 11 year old sickle cell kid who got a fast, it was negative and they, she was ped struck and they were like, okay, she can go to the floor. And she had a grade five eventually, you know, long story short, eventually succumbed from her injuries. But um, I think that is what I see more, most commonly. Um, but yeah, we don't, you know, again, pelvic fracture. I don't know that I've ever seen anyone need a Reboa, any adolescent need a Reboa for a pelvic fracture. So I think that's the difference too. Oh, that I'm, yeah. That was back, that was at, um, yeah, so yeah, it's interesting, you know, um, so the question was, uh, at, in these adolescent patients under when we we had a lot of cut downs, um, a lot of those patients were coding. Some of this is the, the days of the 12 French for sure. Um, and this was also the kind of the start of Reboa. I think we started placing Reboas during like my, like PGY five or six year. But the feeling and how we kind of were directed to start to do Reboa is like, if you can't you know, cut down early, cut down early. So we were doing a lot of cut downs if we couldn't get a wire in, which was, I think a lot less now that people are becoming more, obviously Reboa is more common. The seven French is really what everyone's using, hopefully, and they think on the horizon, the four French. So I think, you know, I think cut, if you look at more, I didn't go over all the aorta database and stuff like that, but th there's a lot less cut downs now. Yeah. I want to go back to the um, fast or the PDF. So being that we are in a built trauma center and um, we're trying to reduce the amount of cats, you know, stuff that we're doing, how should we implement that information about fast and things in the PDF? So I wish, I don't know that I, but uh, let me see if I have any extra slides of our CHOA. This is more Roboa stuff. Uh, okay. Um, so I wish I could bring up our blunt abdominal trauma and I can share that. The question, sorry for, for the Zoomers, um, is that um, how, do, how do you use FAST in pediatric trauma, right? Um, in, in an adult trauma center where you use it so often, it's so reflexive, just grab a probe and put it on a patient. Um, I think the answer, and so we took out FAST completely, or we added a thing on our blunt abdominal trauma algorithm this year to say that FAST is not, a, is not accurate in, in pediatric trauma patients. So you should CT scan if patients, if they have a concerning exam, if they're complaining of abdominal pain or their enzymes are greater than 200, that's, that is our, so a lot of kids get scanned. It doesn't mean that kids need a pan scan. Right, so that kind of pan scan, which you do in the adult trauma world, which is great, takes out a lot of thought um, with high volume trauma centers like your guys. But in peds, you know, if you have a kid come in, you don't need to scan their chest often. Thoracic trauma is very rare. If they have a normal chest X-ray, they don't need a CT scan. They usually do not need a CTC spine. They can get just plain, plain X-rays. I, I apply over, over 50, I do that for the, just the under 15 world. Um, over 15 and we ha we'll have a C-spine thing coming out soon because that's kind of changing a little bit. Um, so most of the kids that I, that I evaluate in a trauma bay that are coming from the scene and not from a transfer are going to get a head CT, they're going to get a chest x-ray and they're going to abdominal and pelvis CT. It is so rare that I actually ever do a chest CT or a CT C-spine on a, on a child. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a good question. I, we, we see a lot of both. I think actually you guys are pretty good about just like stabilizing and moving. I think of all the, the places, a lot of centers will just pan scan, but that might not be a kid that's an extremist. Again, that's super rare, but um, 
yeah, I would say it is fine to do exactly what you guys are doing, which is stabilize and transfer. You don't necessarily need to do the full workup unless, you know, those kids that are getting the full workup should probably be the ones that don't look that sick, right? That that are like, oh, do they need to go down to a pediatric trauma center? Do they, you know, so let's do, do our workup. And again, that's full labs, chest X-ray, pelvic X-ray. Um, and then, you know, if they meet criteria, then and obviously a lot, I, I'm very easy. There's there's that the PCRN stuff for head CTs, but I tend to scan heads quickly, you know, pretty reflexively because they have high rates of TBIs and then abdomen and pelvis if they meet criteria. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's see. All right, I think that hits uh, our time limit. So thank you again for having me up in Gainesville. Thank you very much. That was very informational. We really appreciate you coming out. If you are watching online, please complete the CE survey. Even if you don't need CME, um, just for feedback, we would love that. There's people who are studying to scan. Hi. Awesome. How are you?